Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Wednesday, February 28, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. Civil War historians John F. Marzalek, Craig L. Simons, and Harold Holzer discuss the Civil War border states. And now, enjoy the podcast. Welcome back, John and Craig. Thanks to all of you for joining yet another of our deep dives into the battles and leaders of the Civil War. Tonight, I guess, plurals are needed to describe um, what we're doing because we're going to be covering several states, several military engagements, and a number of personalities. And as for the territory we'll be exploring, it arguably represents, in a way, the most crucial battleground of the entire Civil War. Let me quote... Um, as I'm prone to do one thing that Abraham Lincoln said, or at least he's credited with saying, about one of the states we're going to be talking about tonight. He said, I would like to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. (laughs) In a way, no more telling phrase was ever uttered about the contested geography known collectively as the border states, which you see here. Located in the Upper South, where slavery was legal, but where pro-union and pro-secession sentiment vied for predominance throughout the Civil War, where battles were waged to control land, and where politicians did battle of their own for the minds and hearts of the white population. Here, the benefits of the Emancipation Proclamation would not extend, as Lincoln remained and would remain, I don't want to get ahead of the timeline, politically cautious about alienating supporters of the Union who were owners or supporters of slavery. All a very perilous balancing act and one that in, for a long time left enslaved people in the cold, sort of as pawns in this struggle. So we've got it all tonight, political conflict, military action, social upheaval, um, And if you take Lincoln at his word, the very fate of the Union in the balance. And we have Delaware, Maryland, Western Virginia, Kentucky, and Missouri. So we'll have to move fast to cut a swath across the country and get everything in. I guess we'll start with Maryland because it's the earliest contested border state, especially crucial to the Union, as you can imagine, because if Maryland secedes from the Union then Washington, D.C. is cut off from the rest of the country, and it would be completely isolated and surrounded by hostile forces. By, early, uh, by the way, Abraham Lincoln got 2% of the popular vote in Maryland in 1860. So um, not a lot of pro-Republican and maybe not a lot of pro-Union sentiment there. Um, in fact, on, on route to the presidency uh, in February, en route to his inauguration, he sneaks through Baltimore. Uh, His enemies whispered and visualized in disguise. 
uh, a scotch cap or military overcoat that you see on one image here. And perhaps because it was a scotch cap, he was also wearing kilts. So um, he enters uh, he enters the presidency mocked for his passage through Maryland, the only state below the Mason-Dixon line that Lincoln must cross to get to Washington. So let's start with Maryland, and let's start with Craig. Craig, you're sort of a born-again Marylander. Um, I know you've been, you were there for 40 years teaching at Annapolis. So tell us first, do you think the, the assassination plot it was credible? Let's start with that. Well, it was too credible for uh, Lincoln to ignore. Uh, probably there were ru- certainly rumors. There were a couple of cranks who were planning to do something. Uh, there's an argument that goes back and forth about how serious it was, but I think it was serious enough that Lincoln had to take it seriously and did pass. He regretted it, as you well know, immediately afterward, that he should have boldly, he thought, uh, have ignored it and, and proceeded. But, but I want to say this about Maryland to begin with. Maryland is crucial in a lot of ways, and it, it, it's rooted in the slavery question. Uh, it's axiomatic in the Civil War that slavery was the root cause of the sectional dispute. But keep in mind that these border states that you saw on that first map in the hash line states had less than half as many slaves as a percentage than the states that actually seceded from the Union. So you can, you can trace the enthusiasm for secession and for the Southern Confederacy in a direct correlation with how pervasive slavery was. Maryland had about 13% slaves, but it was an unusual state in a number of ways because instead of being north to south in terms of commitment to slavery, it was east to west. On the eastern, what they call the eastern shore, the Delmarva Peninsula, where the plantations were located, slavery was quite strong and southern sentiment was quite strong. The further west you went, the less, the fewer slaves there were and the less enthusiasm there was for secession and for the Confederacy. So that created an east-west dynamic in the state. So that's one curious thing about Maryland. And another curious thing is the city of Baltimore, as Harold mentioned. Baltimore was the fourth largest city in the country in 1860. Or for a New York audience in particular, I'll say it could have been the third largest city because New York and Brooklyn were one and three Philadelphia was number two and Baltimore four. And there were, in Maryland, uh, and in Baltimore in particular, there were 2,500 slaves. But here's the unique thing with the asterisks and the footnote, is that there were 25,000 free blacks in Baltimore. And that created a very specific (laughs) dynamic. And it made Baltimore a very volatile environment for Lincoln. So the idea of his traversing through this area. I know Harold's going to ask me later about this uh, April 19th massacre, but, but what's critical is you can't go through Baltimore on a train in 1860 or 1861. John and I did it, you know, coming up on, on the train, but you can't... By the way, you, this is not unique to Baltimore. Every city has right, a north yeah. terminus and a south terminus. Right, you got off the New train, right. you traveled across the town, you got on another train. So it wasn't just passing through Baltimore, it was getting off the train and traversing the city. So that created a certain right. questionable dynamic. Well, I was just going to mention, too, the, uh, the thing about Baltimore. Baltimore had, whether fair or unfair, but had a reputation as being a city of mobs. Yeah. That people gathered together... And so this was a great opportunity, even if you didn't like Lincoln or if you liked Lincoln, this is a great opportunity to cause some mischief 
And there was indeed a tremendous amount of, 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 uh, of sure mischief enough. there, too. But, you know, just get one other point I was just going to make that, that I didn't know this either, but I just, just found this out fairly recently, that actually, actually, Kentucky, another one of the border states, had more slaves than did Mississippi, where I, my home, so-called home state. And that's an amazing phenomenon. But that slavery thing, we're going to talk more about that, but that's, that's really a key. Not even the existence of slavery, but how was emancipation going to be done in these states? You are getting ahead of the game here. I yeah, am, but uh, that's... All right. this, is what, this is what becomes of uh, having as my representative of slave states someone from Buffalo and someone from Southern California. <laughs> <laughs> But they are still identified with Maryland and Mississippi, <laughs> respectively. Um, by the way, just very quickly about this. Yes, he had to change trains, but the train car was pulled across yeah. town yes, by right. horses. So the amount of danger he faced is still open to question. I think the plot was real. He got it from two credible sources. But let's move on in Maryland. I think you've set the stage beautifully about the conditions in the city and the state. So I'm showing this fellow... Mm-hmm. Who is John Merriman? Who was John Merriman, and why is he important in this in this story? Yeah, John Merriman has carved out a place for himself in history by virtue of being a member and then subsequently commander of a, a troop of volunteer militia in Maryland that initially had the support of the governor Thomas Hicks uh, to try to make keep trouble away from Maryland in general and Baltimore in particular. In order to get to Washington, D.C., troops coming from the north had to pass through not only Baltimore, but through Maryland. I mean, it had Maryland seceded, and we'll talk more about that later, Washington, D.C. would have been like West Berlin, entirely surrounded by hostile territory, cut off from the outside, accessible only by air, and they couldn't do an airlift in 1861. So... uh, What happened is, well, how can we keep ourselves safe? We'll keep the federal troops from coming through. So these troops went out into the field, cut telegraph lines, thereby cutting off Washington from the outside news, and burned bridges, making it impossible or at least difficult for troops and and supplies to get through Maryland to Washington. It was such a serious problem that the uh, general in charge, uh, a fellow named George Cadwallader, had him arrested burning bridges, cutting telegraph lines, and locked him up in Fort McHenry. Well, uh, he applied, he appealed for habeas corpus. I want a trial. If I'm being charged with a crime, I want a trial. I was carrying out the bidding of the governor, acting perfectly legally, and I want that to come out. So he went to, or his attorneys, his representatives, went to the representative for that district, who happened to be the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, there Roger Brooke Tawney, whom we see here. Uh, <laughs> and Tawney said, well, absolutely. The writ of habeas corpus is one of the most sacred, sacred. Uh, <laughs> rights we have in this country, so I'll immediately issue the writ. And Cadwallader says, well, I'm sorry, I'm under orders from President Lincoln, who has suspended the writ of habeas corpus. Well, can he do that? you want to continue with this, or you want to have a little conversation about that first? By the way, 14 other members of the legislature are now arrested as well. Oh, yeah. there's a ton of people. Yeah, tons of people. I legislators, mean, other I mean, people. Tawny says, let him, you know, 
show us the body, habeas corpus. Yeah. And Lincoln says, if the chief justice persists in that, arrest the chief justice. Yeah. So there is a well. Now here's here's constitutional the problem. Crisis. There is a clause in the Constitution, Article One, Section Nine, that reads, and aware that Harold might ask me this question, I actually wrote it down to make sure I got it right. That the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended except in cases of rebellion. I think that's Article Two, by the way. It's 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 the congressional. Section congressional article yeah. one. Well, we'll have to except in cases later. of rebellion or invasion, or the public safety may require it. Well, this article, whether it's one or two, <laughs> is the article that discusses the powers of Congress. Right. Yes. So the implication Nations. is Congress can. Well, of course, Congress is not in session, and Abraham Lincoln says, "Well, it's not. Doesn't say it's for Congress. It just says right. the writ." Passive voice. I tell my students not to use passive voice precisely because you can't tell all the time who has the authority and the responsibility. So this is a, a critical argument. Can the president suspend habeas corpus in time of war or rebellion? Or can he not? And this became an argument that lasted really through the war. Well, it lasted even longer because, as I understand it anyway, that's never been solved. That's still out there. The Supreme Court has never ruled on that. Can the president suspend the writ of habeas corpus? Right. And well, Merriman, of course, won the case tilted Mer- uh, the court found for Merriman, but after the Civil but, War. But after, after yeah. it's over. After it's over. I want, I want to show you all this extraordinary photograph that I found of Merriman. This is a concocted photograph. Do you see this thing he's holding that says habeas corpus and opinion of Chief Justice Taney? It's scratched onto the negative of the photograph to make a document that stands out. So he becomes a hero in some ways of the movement to resist dictatorship, presidential overreach. And and the broader question is critical here because Lincoln knew that if he lost Maryland, not only was Washington, D.C. in jeopardy, the Union was in jeopardy. Could he sustain the idea of a national government if they had to evacuate the national capital and move to, say, oh, I don't know, New York City? For example, during the war, that would make it more difficult to make the argument to foreign powers in Europe that this was the legitimate government, that the rebellion had no legal backing. So he was willing to bend the law if he must. And his response to, to the charge of Tawney that this is unconstitutional, you are behaving illegally, Lincoln, I think, very deftly turned it around on him in his uh, July address when he spoke to Congress and said, must all the laws of the government be violated and the government itself go to pieces lest this one law be violated? And it's a great question, which, as John mentioned, still kind of hangs in the air for us all today. And the interesting thing, too, the thing that that strikes me, and I I don't know the answer to this either, but Tawney, of course, before this writ of habeas corpus issue, is the same chief justice who does the Dred Scott decision, who Back basically in says, yeah, 1857, that blacks cannot be citizens, period. Right. And so this, this creates another, another issue, and I, I've always thought, and I have no, nothing to prove it by, but I've always thought that it's because of who Tawney was that Lincoln was, was able to do what he did. Remember, like, Tawney swears Lincoln in. Yeah. There's right. a certain that's, irony. There's an, that's right, too. Harold, can we go back to the picture of Tawny for just a second, if you've got control of that? I just want to tell this quick story, since I'm representing Maryland here. Yeah. There was a statue of Roger Brooke Tawny uh, in, directly in front of the State House in Annapolis, the state capital of Maryland, uh, 
for 100 years. Uh, it's oversized. It's, it's monumental. And there was always controversy about whether the author of the Dred Scott decision should, in fact, have the place of honor in front of the state capitol. Two days after the Charlottesville incident with the tiki torches, right, in the middle of the night, a truck pulled up to the Annapolis State House and hauled it away. It's gone. So I just want when to tell When was this? Story. This was two, three months ago. Yeah. See, not to digress, Maryland had a different answer to that before, which is... Um, oh, yeah. Right? Right. Well, the initial argument, when it came up in the 70s Well, and let me 80s, finish the story. But the, the initial response was to erect a statue of Thurgood Marshall around the corner. Because Tony said blacks could never be citizens. And obviously Marshall not only is a citizen, mm. but he's on the court. Yeah. So yeah. I found that a more powerful response. So now Tony's gone, but Marshall's still there. So. Okay. Less powerful a point. Well, let's not spend yeah. all of our time on the statues. <laughs> Sorry. Just to say, when the Lincoln calls for troops to reach Washington to protect it, they have to go through Baltimore, as did he, coming from the Northeast. They're coming from Massachusetts. And they have their car pulled across the tracks from station to station. I think one of them is Calvert Street. I forgot the other one. Yeah. And President they Street. were attacked by a mob. And there were casualties. And here is a, uh, a print uh, issued in New York right after that. And you can see what they're comparing it to. They're comparing it to the Lexington, the Revolutionary War mm-hmm. attacks. Uh, the, and, and the governor and the mayor then go to the White House and say, um, do I have the governor? Well, here's Lincoln anyway. They go to the White House and they say to Lincoln, we have a way to solve this problem of these riots. No more troops coming through mm-hmm. Maryland. Yeah. And Lincoln has a... Fabulous answer, which I'll read. You would have me break my oath and surrender the government without a blow. There is no Washington in that. There is no Jackson in that. By the way, he's always hated Jackson, and now he's a hero. No manhood and honor in that. I must have troops to defend this capital. Geographically, it lies surrounded by the soil of Maryland. Obviously, he read Craig's um, answer. Um, and mathematically, the necessity exists that they should come over her territory. Here's the part I love. Our men are not moles. They can't dig under the earth. They are not birds, and they can't fly through the air. There was no way to march but to march across, and that they must do. Go home and tell your people that they will, if they will not attack us, we will not attack them. And then he says to the governor of a union state, if they do attack us, We will return it, and severely. Before long, the Union Army occupies Baltimore. Um, The so-called free press is shut down. Editors are imprisoned who are pro-secession. And Sanford Gifford, who's a soldier artist, paints this beautiful painting of Fort Federal Hill at sunset. I like the idea that the the bayonet that the soldier is toting sort of runs parallel to the many church spires on the skyline there. It's a bad reproduction of a beautiful painting. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, so prisoners. um, Now let's switch gears, move west, um, and let's talk about a state in in, uh, another region of the country. And I, you know, it's, Lincoln says he must have Kentucky. um, But it's important to note that 
both presidents of the disunited states are from Kentucky, from Kentucky. both Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis. Um, Davis also makes a trip to his inauguration facing no threats. He has to go north and then south to get um, to Montgomery. Um, Lincoln goes through Kentucky, by the way, or near Kentucky on the way to his inauguration. Someone asks him to go through Kentucky. Why don't you come and visit the state of your nativity, as they say? And Lincoln says, if I go to Kentucky, they might lynch me. And then they publish that in the press, and they make him sound, and it makes him sound like he's a coward, and he has to retract. It's not a, uh, a good situation. Uh, the most he can do is go to Lawrenceburg, Ohio, and point across the river and say, there are good union men on that side of the river. But he never goes to Kentucky again. So this state is awash with Confederate sentiment and union sentiment. John, why don't you start with what, what is happening in Kentucky, especially when Lincoln calls up the militia right, in yeah. April. I think in many ways, Kentucky almost represents what is happening in, in all of the border states. It, it, it is a, it's a huge area. It has, for example, the most black troops later on as the war develops of any of, any of the Union states, interestingly, of any of the border states, pardon me. But the, the, interesting, the interesting thing is that you have a situation in Kentucky where there is no unity. There are some people, for example, the governor... McGoffin, Beriah McGoffin, yeah, yeah, who uh, who is very pro-Confederate. But then you have other people in the state legislature who, when they vote on various issues, are pro-Union. And the intriguing thing, it seems to me, is what happens uh, uh, with Kentucky is that Kentucky decides that the best way to deal with this, and that's why I say it, it gives us an insight into what's going on, best way to look at this is to think in terms of neutrality. We will be neutral. We're not going to be pro-Southern. We're not going to be pro-Union. We're going to be pro-us, pro-Kentucky. And the result of, of that thinking is that the state, which is already confused as to where it's going to go, is even more Confused, And there are some battles that go on and the Union wins and, and there's some, some gathering of Confederates and it's important. But basically, even though today most Kentuckians would say, oh, we were Confederate, they weren't. They were pro-Union more than they were mm-hmm. anything else. And there's some other things I could talk about, but uh, I might just... I, I find one thing about uh, just turning to the Lincoln angle yeah. is this native son of Kentucky, of course, can't really deal with the divided sentiment, he turns to his oldest, most intimate friend, as he's called, Joshua Fry Speed, who was his roommate back in Springfield, Illinois, and is really the only close friend Lincoln ever had, and enlists him to help keep Union sentiment alive in Kentucky. Not a great way to deal with it, to go through your pals and relatives, (laughs) but he's desperate. And Speed, in fact is pro-slavery, but pro-union, and very opposed later to the proclamation, to the Emancipation Proclamation, but helpful in this. But I think a key thing about the way Lincoln handles Kentucky is his patience. You know, patience is not necessarily a common American characteristic. 
Um, but Lincoln is patient with Kentucky. He knew how critical it was. He knew that if he pushed things, he might push them in the wrong direction. So he tried very hard, I think, to to honor Kentucky's claim that they were going to be the Switzerland of the Civil War. You know, mm-hmm. no, no enemy troops, enemy, no Union troops, no Confederate troops, no outside troops will set foot on Kentucky soil. And Lincoln was willing to honor that. And you imagine how difficult it is for the commanders in the field on both sides to be looking at this critical battleground area thinking, well, the other guy, if I don't go in there, the other guy's going to take it. And, and, and if I... So, so it, his patience was absolutely central, I think, the way that, that Kentucky did officially, although an argument, which we'll probably yeah. discuss, does emerge, uh, stay in the Union. John, yeah, gonna... now I was, I was just going to say, and I think you're right, I think Lincoln and the Union's patience, because there were a lot, of, a lot of generals who wanted to go in and do some things. But what actually happened, as you, as you probably know, is the Confederacy attacked in Kentucky, attacked in Columbus. Well, attack is a strong word. The Confederacy, but but they, they blink first and they go in. But they did. Yeah. But, but the point is, they vi- what, as Kentuckians saw it, they violated yeah. Kentucky's neutrality. neutrality. Right. And that then opened the way for the Union side to do some things, too, yeah, which, were, yeah. which were important, including... But that mattered to a lot of Kentuckians. Sure. Look, we oh, declare yeah. our neutrality. We're not going to... And these Confederate troops march into our state and occupy yep. a section. Well, that's it. I'm not going to be for them. That's and right. It, and it worked. It did work. Not for everybody, obviously. But, for but I them. think Lincoln restrained himself in the tacit recognition or acknowledgement of this claim for neutrality. I think he never saw Kentucky as anything less than committed to the Union, and had there been a twitch of moving to the other side, there would have been a much stronger military response and occupation. But I, I, I think you could still argue, though, he didn't. He didn't. He stepped back, and, and the Confederates made the big mistake. He let them make he, their own, he let as them, he did at Fort Sumter. That's let right. Them let make them make the mistake. Right. That, exactly. Let them do it, and then it's, hey, I, that's not me. I didn't do that. It was By the done. way, here's a chilling statistic. I found it. So 76,000 Kentuckians fought in the Union Army Mm -hmm. and 25,000 fought in the Confederate Army. That may be a little bit, probably exaggerates the Union sentiment, but those are the numbers. Those are the numbers. 30,000 dead. Yeah. That's a huge, one of the biggest casualty rates of of volunteers. By percentage. From any, by percentage. percentage, So let's go to Missouri so we can cover the waterfront here. Um, Again, secessionists and Unionists. Um, oh, I forgot to show. Well, Grant starts in Kentucky, right? That's Leonidas. And Paducah, Polk. yeah. Paducah. So here's the governor of, uh, of Missouri, Claiborne Jackson. Um, he tilts one way, doesn't he? He calls for troops to fight General Lyon. Well, actually, what he, what he, what he wants to do and, and what he does is he looks at the situation and he hopes that Missouri will go with the Confederacy. Yeah. But they don't want to. So he figures, well, what can I do? So what he does is he calls out the militia, thinking the militia will, will side with the Confederacy. And then you have the famous Fort Jackson episode, because the militia meets there, and then Lyon comes, Nathaniel Lyon, uh, a, a United States officer and a Union officer by that time, uh, attacks... Fort Jackson and moves the troops out and as the I mean moves the militia out and as they're moving out 
they're, of course, attacked on the road, so to speak. And there's a fire, gunfire, all sorts of things are going on. And suddenly this issue becomes a major issue. And one, I think, again, Missouri and all of these states, I suppose you could say that, but Missouri particularly uh, is, is a mixed up place because you have somebody like Frank Blair of the famous Blair family who takes the side of the Union. You have this governor taking the side of the Confederacy. And what you have happening is you have this debate going on within the state. It's fascinating to me that people like General Sherman, General Halleck, and others were there and saw what was going on. And in fact, Sherman came to the conclusion, man, I don't, there's no hope for the Union with this kind of situation. He was totally wrong. You were well, I'd like to compare Claiborne Jackson, the governor of Missouri, with uh, uh, Thomas Hicks, yeah, the governor yeah. of Maryland, because yeah. Hicks was a pro-union governor who had a pro-Southern legislature. That's a good point. Good point. And Clay, uh, uh, Jackson, Jackson, just yeah. the opposite. He's a pro-Southern governor with a pro-union legislature. And how they each handled it, the Hicks, the governor of Maryland, simply said, well, I'm not going to call the legislature into session. Yeah, You know, in the five days after Fort Sumter, Fort Sumter is, is the April 14th, the, the, the bleeding on the streets of Baltimore, the so-called uh, President Street Station massacre in Baltimore is, is four days later. Had the legislature been called into session within the next week after that, it's almost certain, I think, that they would have called for a convention and the convention would have taken Maryland out of the Union. And you can imagine the consequences of that. But Hicks just said, I'm not going to do it. I just, so he, and then when he finally did call him into session, he has the meet in Frederick, Maryland, way to the west, yeah. where the sentiment is different, and has 31 members of the legislature arrested. That'll slow down your enthusiasm for... Yeah. Well, Claiborne Jackson is just We the do opposite. that in New York, but it yes, has nothing well, to do with, with issue discussion. Okay. <laughs> but but he, this guy is just the opposite. Yeah. He, so uh, let, he, let's, let's go on to the military, though, in Missouri, because here uh, we, have, we have in Missouri... Championing, championing the Union cause, we have Henry Halleck and John Charles Fremont. And I'm not sure that helps or hurts the situation. Yeah. Well, what, do, what do you both think? I, I was gonna say, I'll talk a little bit about, uh, about Fremont because Fremont... You surprised me. Fremont. I thought you'd talk about Halleck. You're the Halleck I know you I'm the Halleck. I don't want to talk about Halleck. Right. Anyway, I'm going to talk about Fremont. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you talk about Halleck. That'll get more even temper. But no, I think what, what, what Fremont does, of course, is he actually decides he's going to free the slaves in Missouri. Lincoln goes, a little bit later, yeah. Yeah, yeah, a little bit later. But, but, that, but that, the point is, he does that. And Lincoln, of course, goes berserk. Because after all, after all this is a state that's you know, going through this, the things that, that uh, Craig was talking about. And here's a guy who's taking under, under his authority the right to do emancipation. And you can't, you can't really do that, says Lincoln. I'm the one. So it's, right. very, it's a little similar to ex-party merriment because you've got the argument in both cases. You don't have the authority to do this. It's a good well, keep in mind that Fremont was a general, yes, but he was also a politician. He yes, had been he a was. Republican presidential yes. candidate in 1856. And his the wife, first Republican his, presidential candidate. His wife's married to uh, Thomas Hart. No, his wife is the daughter. Of I mean, Thomas he's the daughter, Hart. not the married, married to, to his daughter. Yeah. Yeah. So there's right. political as well as military right. issues yeah. going on. But you're, you're right, yeah. So does anyone want to talk about poor General Halleck? <laughs> sure. He's important. 
Uh, go ahead. You want to talk? No. no I... In case you don't know, John is a biographer of General Halleck, so I'm, I'm not. He's clearly moved on. <laughs> Well, you well know, Halleck is in charge. Of Halleck, the Halleck be, be, becomes the guy that's in charge. And let's face it, he does not do a particularly good job. I'm glad I didn't say that. That's no. I mean, it's, it's unfortunately. I mean, Grant just wants to talk to him, for example. And he, I've got this idea. Could we try this? Could we try this? And, and Halleck basically says, I'm not interested. That, that's stupid. Don't even bother with that. Halleck is an administrator. He is not a fighting general. Now, you could argue, but maybe that this is what's needed in, in Missouri at this time, but I don't think so. I think he needed to take some sort of stand, which he, which he didn't. Well, I think we're talking about patience in terms of Lincoln's attitude toward Kentucky. Impatience is a key to what happens in Missouri. Because yes, Nathaniel uh, yeah. Lyons decides it's intolerable that this Camp Jackson which the governor has set up and is clearly pro-Southern and even gathered some artillery sent to him by Jefferson Davis. He's got to surround these people and take them all prisoner, which he does fairly easily. But then he marches them through St. Louis. Had he just let that camp sit there and ignored it, maybe things would have played out differently because overall sentiment in Missouri was largely pro-Union. But that alienated a number of fence-sitters who then went over to the Confederate side, just as... The Confederate decision to invade Kentucky first tipped, tipped a lot of people in Kentucky into the Union camp. Nathaniel Lyon's decision to attack Camp Jackson tipped a lot of neutral people into the Confederate camp. And Missouri became essentially a bushwhacking yeah, mini-civil yeah. war right. within a civil, civil war. war. It was really an ugly war that took place in Missouri from 1861 to 64. Well, can I just get my two cents yeah. in about Fremont? Because... He has a saintly reputation in abolitionist circles and in history for bravely, if precipitously, announcing an emancipation for Missouri. He was, in fact, a, uh, a boneheaded, tin-eared a occupier of, of a... Say what you occupier. think, Harold. Say it down. He, he installed himself in a palatial headquarters yes, with- that, was, that people were scandalized about, um, and with, he was inept militarily. So. Well, and you remember, too, that he, uh, he had uh, a lot of his staff and the people around him happened to be Hungarians who didn't speak much English. <laughs> and this created, this created uh, some, you know, a problem. But, you know, I, I, it just strikes me, too, that one of the problems with... with I actually the, did not know that, but that's did? a good thing hey, to know. Yeah, no, I I'm didn't. Mar- I'm married to a part Hungarian, you know, so that... that why, why did, as long as you brought it up, why did he surround himself with Hungarians? Because it was the cool thing to do. These were the... These were the experts, right. European fighters, and they would be there, and they would help him. They would provide the... He's, a, he's very much of a... So of if a, he says, you know, order the third unit into action, they don't know what he's They don't saying. know what he's saying, but he, they wouldn't do that. It's not efficient. But, but they ran the headquarters, and this is one of the, one of the problems that, uh, that Grant had. He couldn't get through this Hungarian screen. But let me just, let me just, uh, let me just also, also uh, mention, too, that... One of the problems in Missouri is that you have what is happening is Missouri is becoming more northern. And by that, I mean you have a lot of Irish and German immigrants mm-hmm. coming into, into Missouri. And you still have, you know, you have earlier than that, of course, you had people from the south were coming into, into Missouri. But with this coming on and you had this and a person like uh, Frank Blair 
uh, who is very much of a of a, of a, a politician, as you were saying, who who's going to do this in such a way. He's going to use the advantage he has, he thinks, with the German immigrants and make them his supporters. And as a result, things are going to go in the direction of the union, which is which is fine. But the, the problem is, is that the state is so mixed up. And I think Greg's point is uh, Craig's point is well taken. You have a situation in Missouri where. It just it just goes on and on and on this guerrilla warfare because they can't agree even within the state as to what they're going to do. And so I, I think that that, again, indicates something about these so-called border states. Yeah, there are there's th- let me let me give you some of some of these statistics that I collected. Unlike Kentucky, one thousand one hundred battles and skirmishes mm-hmm. in Missouri right. in four years. Um, 109,000 Missourians fight for the Union, 49,000 for the Confederacy. 440 units raised for the Union in Missouri, 100 for the Confederacy. Again, a little bit like four to one. I would say in terms of the German influx, it's really centered in St. Louis. Right. And um, even there, and again, if you drive this by statistics, Lincoln gets only 5 or 6% of the vote in Missouri in 1860. Almost all of it is in St. Louis, sure. where there is a the Republican party. statistics are less, I think, revealing than the demographics of the state itself. Slave yeah. owners and slavery yeah. itself yeah. as an institution existed along that bottom of the right. Missouri River, running from the southeast to the northwest across the state. And that was very pro-Southern. Elsewhere, particularly in St. Louis, but north as well as south mm-hmm. of the Missouri River Valley, they were yeoman farmers who had no interest in slavery and therefore no interest and in slavery. And it's not that St. Louis was a particularly... Um, uh, elevated or progressive city. I mean, oh, um, Elijah Lovejoy, the right. the editor nope. who was killed in Alton, Illinois, right across the river, fled a mob attack in St. Louis to establish himself in Alton, only to meet his mm. his death in in Alton, which is roughly, I think, parallel. So Southern Illinois and Northern Missouri. But anyway, yeah, no. a complicated, complicated state. So if I rushing through inevitably as we have to do. We get to 1862 and something really consequential, maybe because I'm an Eastern theater person, I you know, can't help myself, <laughs> but Lee um, invades Maryland um, and uh, you know, marching through Western Maryland, he's sort of surprised that he's not greeted more as a conquering hero. And they wind up at, at Antietam, which yeah. is consequential not only as a military action, because it means the end of Lee's advance into Union territory, but because it emboldens Lincoln to release the Emancipation Proclamation. Right. Well, this, of course, takes place soon after the uh, Second Battle of Manassas, where Lee has, has gained the advantage of his foe, and, and he has the initiative, and he doesn't want to just sit there and wait for another uh, northern invasion, so he decides to take the fight to the enemy. And there was enough belief that Maryland was somehow an occupied Mm-hmm. Country. I mean, they were naturally affiliated with the South. They're below the Mason-Dixon line. They are a slave state. They would have come, unarguably, that might even be true, would have come into the Confederacy had they not been suppressed by the governor, had he call, didn't call the convention. So the idea is, well, we'll in, go into Maryland and we'll bring with us wagons full of arms 
for all the volunteers who will flock to the colors and join the army and swell the size of the army from 55,000 to 80,000 or so. Then we'll march on to the Susquehanna, surround Baltimore and Philadelphia, and somehow dictate peace in the White House. That's, that's the big dream. And so all of these wagons are accompanying the troops that march across the river singing the Maryland state song, Maryland, my Maryland. Um, and nobody volunteers. Mm-hmm. Nobody shows up because, as I mentioned earlier, the sentiment in Maryland is not north to south. It's east to, to west. west yeah. And if you're out on the eastern shore, which, of course, is inaccessible to the Confederates because they can't cross the Chesapeake Bay, no <laughs> bridge in those days, they might have found some support. But where they cross the river in western Maryland, they're despised by the local residents. There's a famous story, of course, of Barbara Fritchie. Barbara Fritchie. As they're marching Wait, I, I'm going to show her in a minute. So You're going to show I'll, her. But I'll I will save that you, one. You will tell I'll the story. But That's I don't know if Lee is fortunate or unfortunate to meet McClellan as his foe. Well, one of the things Lee does is that uh, he divides his army. Lee is a daring, bold tactician. Uh, there's a lot to admire about the way he managed his army, whatever you may think about him otherwise. And one of the things he does when he crosses the river, here he is in enemy territory with a smaller army, and he divides it divides into thirds. All the books say don't do that. He does it anyway because he's trying to take Harper's Ferry, which is his communications link back into the south. So he sends two-thirds of his army to take Harper's Ferry, and here he is with a third of his army up here by himself in Maryland, and he says, you know, people warned him. They said, General, you know, that's a, high, a great risk. Uh, General McClellan may attack you. And in effect says, I know General McClellan. <laughs> General McClellan is a friend, friend of, of mine. mine. Yes, he is General McClellan well. is going to take weeks to decide what to do and then weeks <laughs> deciding how to do it. But instead of that, McClellan finds this very famous war order, number 191, lying on the ground, wrapped mm-hmm. around three cigars, a sergeant finds it, takes it to the captain. Captain takes it to the colonel. Colonel takes it to McClellan, and it's a copy of Lee's orders. So now McClellan knows Lee has divided his army, and uncharacteristically, McClellan, the young Napoleon here with his hand inside his jacket, acts uncharacteristically swiftly and brings on the Battle of Antietam. There is your cue. There's Barbara. It should have preceded ah, the battle, but you're right. So this is... Uh, the 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 poem with the uh, right. Barbara Fitchy, Fritchie. Right, right. Fritchie. This is supposedly Stonewall Shoot Jackson. Shoot if you must. Marching his division head, through but, Frederick. Well, let me do the line. Shoot if you must this old gray <laughs> head, but spare my country's flag. No, it's better than that. Better than Harold. that, yes. Shoot if you must my this nice old gray, gray head, head, but, but spare, spare your, your country's, country's flag, flag instead, which she is a said. nice touch. Yeah. Yes. Right? Yeah. But so anyway, the house is still there. You can visit it. That's Stonewall uh, yeah. Jackson yeah. marching through and sparing her old gray head. Um, a, a, a moment that actually happened. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Took yeah. two of us to straighten it yeah, out. Yeah, I know. It usually does. The dude right. does, yeah. And then a few days later, the Battle of Perryville in Kentucky. And one of our questioners is one of our questions is what would have happened if the, if the result had been different in the Battle of Perryville? So, John, do you, can you do a quick. Battle of Perryville update and analysis? Well, basically, I mean, what, what Perryville has to do with, uh, with the Confederates moving through and losing to Buell. That's ba- the, 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 the Union uh, commander. So I, I don't know. I mean, that's one of those questions that uh, 
But it's a big battle. In oh, the we love it's a big questions. Vote. What would have happened if? I mean, yeah. I can say anything. Yeah, well, that's what so, I can say. Well, yeah, I think this, I think this question is legitimate. But, but I think it's legitimate. Let me try to answer it legitimately. And I think the legitimate well, answer to the question. is... Would it have made a difference to the outcome of the war? I think that's a fair I think question. the answer to that is no. No. Okay. I think yeah. what happened is the Confederate surge had pretty much spent itself by the time it got to Perryville. And Buell had been hoarding his forces and, yeah. and, and its counterattack pretty much eliminated that initiative, that forward momentum. And I think even if the Confederates had been successful on the battlefield of Perryville, I think uh, Braxton Bragg and his forces and Sterling Price, who was cooperating with them, would have had to retreat anyway. They had outrun their supply line. They were operating in territory that was not friendly to them. They had hoped to get as far as the Ohio River. Had they tried to do that, they might have been cut off and annihilated altogether. So the shorter answer is I don't think that a Confederate success at Perryville or a Confederate success at Antietam could have turned the war. Mm. I, I think I disagree about Antietam. Okay. Well, Only because it delays emancipation, well, it delays true. black recruitment. That's true. Well, yeah. that, that part. Of it. But, but, but one of, one of the, the difficulties is, is it, it, I think what Craig is getting at, is it, it doesn't matter because it didn't happen. What happened was... Okay, we, this. Can, we can go on. Yeah. I agree. So now we, with, with, we have to be very careful with Ron Chernow in the audience. But we have Grant and we have... One of Grant's more famous orders uh, is, the, is order number 11. And I think we should deal with that as one thing that Grant decided to do to contain or to control his military department. So, John, why don't you, why don't you briefly do... I'm going to let... I'm gonna let uh, that's... No, let, let, me, let me comment on that because yeah. we're, we're, we're talking about the same... No, we're talking about the order banning the Jews. Oh yeah, well, that one I well, because we we there's yeah. What what Grant does, and it's a very very much of a debatable point why he did it. Some people say it was had something to do with his father being so arrogant and so forceful and all. But what he does, he issues an order, basically saying that he doesn't say Jewish merchants, or he doesn't say merchants, he says Jews. Peddlers, right. Yeah, 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 that they will not be allowed to reside in this this particular particular area. Jews Uh, as a class. As a class, that's exactly right. So, you know, the the whole issue is, and, and, you know, historians like Ron and others have have talked about this, but later on, Grant, Grant, well, Lincoln says, no, that's wrong. You're not going to do that. But I think Grant realizes early on too that he made he blew, he blew it he made a he made a blunder. So when he's president later on, he does a whole lot of things that you would not expect someone who issued uh, Order Number Eleven uh, to do. Uh, my favorite one is he appoints a Jewish man to be head of all the Christian missionaries to the Indians during his presidency. <laughs> And you think that's that's not some, or he sits through a Jewish ceremony, what two or three hours? It's a, sir, it's a Sabbath service. Sabbath service, yeah. And he sits through it. No English either. He sits through an Orthodox yeah, yeah. service, right? But anyway, so that's okay. You want to say anything about it? Well, I think one of the curious things that happened, he, he got complaints that there were uh, merchants who were coming in among the army and selling them things and buying things, and they were buying up excess bayonets and rifles and selling 
whiskey and other things that were, and it had become such a problem within the army. His subordinates were coming to him and complaining about this. And what he, I think, really what he meant to say was that I don't want these merchants, merchants around. That's right. But conflated merchants with Jews, and that's how it came out. Well, so that yeah. was just it's not his finest moment. Not um, his finest. We can no, blame not. his father, and you you should have maybe added. It's not just that his father is strong. It's that his father had been in partnership or hoodwinked he, by he, a Jewish merchant. and he was, Grant couldn't ban his father as a class, so he banned Jews he as banned, a class, which is my well, interpretation. That, no, that's, so know. you can't just throw his father in without explaining the partnership. Yeah, no, no, no. Right? But, but, no, but, but again, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think Grant, Grant just screwed up because yeah. he was frustrated by the fact that, that these merchants were buying and selling things and getting in his way and cotton and right. all the rest. It so. was a bad, bad, it was a mistake. Julia was actually, I think, more forthright in saying how stupid it was than yeah, Grant was himself. Will do that. And Lincoln, yeah, yeah. yeah so don't do that. I'll just do this one order quickly, uh, this additional order, also called order number 11, um, because it gives me an excuse to show this famous George Caleb Bingham painting. Uh, and ironically, it is... Uh, in response to an order by General Sherman's step-brother-in-law, General Thomas Ewing, banning not Jews but pro-Confederate sympathizers from Missouri. And Bingham was one of many who thought it was the most outrageous order in, in the history of American military. military or, uh, right. um, and, and Lincoln endorsed this one. He overturned General Order Number Eleven by Grant, but he said this one is fine, yeah, um, because it was triggered by Quantrill's raid, supposedly, and the, the casualties of it. It stayed in effect for six months, and Missourians had to prove their loyalty proactively, not defend themselves, but prove yeah. their loyalty to get back yeah. on their land. Yeah, I can just add on. You mentioned Quantrill. I'm glad you did. William Quantrill yeah. and, and Jesse James and his brother were characteristic of the bands of irregulars, they called themselves, essentially just brigands, who rampaged up and down Missouri on both sides, although predominantly for the South, uh, and, and turned this war into a war of brother against brother and town against town and village against village, and it became almost like gang warfare. In, in Missouri. When we talked earlier about a war within a war, that's the kind of war it was. And when the war ended in 1865, these people had no place else to go, so they headed out west and became bank robbers. And that's why Jesse James and some of these other yeah. people ended up where they ended up. So Let me rush through some of these slides so we can get to a few more questions. Of course, yeah. emancipation comes on January 1st, 1863. Um, Lincoln had tried to do a deal with border state congressmen to do compensated emancipation mm-hmm. in the border states. They rejected him almost unanimously. It would have ended slavery in the border states, possibly ended contentiousness in the border states. It failed. So on January 1st, all those who were um, in rebellion against the United States lose their property in human beings. And, of course, what it also leads to is African-American recruitment. And so, can I, I'm sorry to tack onto that, but it's border states aren't really much affected by this because yeah, it's right. in areas controlled by those in rebellion against the government. So well, that's, if yeah, Union that's troops exactly are there, what I they remain enslaved. They cannot, they, yeah, we said that at the beginning. Yeah, and again, sorry. it's only affects those in areas disloyal right. to the government right. in armed rebellion against but yet, the United but States. But yet, I, I think that, in fact, if 
for what it's worth. I think that one of the main reasons why the border states reacted the way they did was because it didn't matter. They didn't think in terms, neither did the slaves for that matter, that, that well, there were in areas that are not, that are not, you know, slave areas. But the, the, the fact of the matter was that, that just by Lincoln pushing for slavery was violating his oath, I will never touch slavery, I will leave it alone. And here they're, do, they're doing this. And so, so in places like Missouri, in places like Kentucky, this, this got a lot of people upset because this was violating his word, and it was violating... Well, he didn't order. He didn't make an executive order. He tried to strike a deal yeah. congressionally. Right, but, but even point. the idea that he yeah. would even bring it up was a bad idea. Let me do more statistics. Black recruitment in the border states. I mean, here's a, a poster, yeah. a famous poster. Missouri, 8,300 African-American soldiers. Maryland, 8,700. And Kentucky... 23,000 African-American soldiers. Um, And to get back to Maryland, um, Maryland moves ahead before the 13th Amendment. Its legislature, which we have been so critical of before, for fomenting rebellion, uh, secession, and resistance, uh, becomes the first border state to outlaw slavery on its own. And it's a matter of great rejoicing to Lincoln. Um, It's a very complicated story. So, I don't know, while I'm looking at questions, since Lincoln could not affect emancipation in the border states before the 13th Amendment, by which time he's no longer alive, so why, did he exaggerate that he needed Kentucky more than God? I mean, how important were the, the border states to the maintenance of the Union? Oh, I, I think they were. I think they were. They were crucial. Okay. At, I mean, and, and I would just add again that it, it did have to do with this question of emancipation. They could live with slavery because they had been living with slavery, but emancipation, freeing slaves, and then uh, and if you read uh, my one of my colleagues, Bill Parrish, has written a book on this Missouri and the Civil War and Missouri and Reconstruction, and it's amazing what goes on in Reconstruction, for example. Well, let me say this about the three border states we're talking about, and, and the three that matter are Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri. We have not mentioned Delaware. No offense to any Delawareans or Delawareites that may be in the audience, but or Delaware. Or Western Virginians. We couldn't get to everyone. West Virginia Western we haven't Virginia. talked about, and that deserves its entire a conversation by itself. But of the three we have been talking about, if they had, in fact, gone to the Confederacy, and it was a very near-run thing in mm-hmm. all three states. In fact, the Confederate flag which if you think about it, has 13 stars in it. Two of those stars are for Kentucky and Missouri. Right. And had those three states, in fact, gone to the Confederacy, it would have increased the white population of the Confederacy by 45% to add just those three states. But here's the daunting statistic. It would have increased the industrial productivity yeah, yeah. of the Confederacy by 80%. So you add those three to the Confederacy. Think about how near run the Civil War was anyway. I think a good argument can be made. If Lincoln loses those states, if he loses not just Kentucky, but Maryland and Missouri, the Confederacy could very well have won the Civil War. Well, you just you just look at a, you know that first map that Harold showed, too. You look at those so-called border states and see the difference if those were Confederate and not Union, how much closer or how much further south the Union would have, would have 
They start from further back. Yeah, they start further can. back, right. exactly. And it would have and been. They have the Ohio part. River as a right, boundary, right. which helps militarily. Yeah, I think you, that's a convincing answer. Military um, industrialization, potential oh, sure. for yeah. quadrupling industrialization. Let me see if I can get one more in. I mean, this is also, in a sense, a what if. It's almost a negative what if question. Looking back and remembering that the, I'm almost answering the question, these are the very early days of secession. Yeah. Did Lincoln need to set a, 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 an unpleasant precedent mm. and suspend civil liberties in Maryland as early as he did? My opinion? Yeah. Yes, I think he did. I think it was absolutely critical. It was a critical moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, that week after Fort Sumter, Maryland could have gone either way, and he knew it. Uh, and if you say, oh, well, habeas, we can't really arrest anybody for burning bridges and cutting mm-hmm. telegraph wires. We'll allow these these troops of irregular soldiers to do whatever they think is necessary will allow D.C. to be cut off from the rest of the country. It was extraordinary, but it was an extraordinary time. And I think he did need to act. So Lincoln goes back to Baltimore in 1864 for a charity event. And he remembers that there was a time when soldiers could not so much as pass through Baltimore. And he remarks... The change from then till now is both great and gratifying. Blessings on the brave men who have wrought the change and the fair women who have striven to reward them for it. Equal opportunity praise. Then he poses a serious problem that I think America has been grappling with ever since, before and after. The world has never had a good definition of the word liberty. And the American people just now are much in want of one. Um, Things change and they stay the same. So thank you for joining us to discuss the border states. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.